Jeremiah chapter 41, beginning in verse 1, Ishmael will murder Gedaliah, treacherously kill others, cast bodies into a pit. Look at verse 1. Now it came to pass in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Netanyah, the son of Elishema, of the royal family of the officers of the king, came with ten men to Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakam at Mitzpah. And there they ate bread together in Mitzpah. Then Ishmael, the son of Netanyah, and the ten men who were with him arose and struck Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakam, the son of Shaphan, with the sword and killed him, whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Jews who were with him, that is, with Gedaliah at Mitzpah and the Chaldeans who were found there, the men of war. And it happened on the second day after he had killed Gedaliah, when as yet no one knew it, that certain men came from Shechem, from Shiloh, from Samaria, 80 men with their beards shaved and their clothes torn, having cut themselves with offerings and incense in their hand to bring them to the house of the Lord which, by the way, had been destroyed. Verse 6, Now Ishmael, the son of Netanyah, went out from Mitzvah to meet them, weeping as he went along. And it happened as he met them that he said to them, Come to Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim. So it was when they came into the midst of the city that Ishmael, the son of Netanyah, killed them and cast them into the midst of a pit, he and the men who were with him. But ten men were found among them who said to Ishmael, don't kill us, for we have treasures of wheat and barley, oil and honey in the field. So he desisted and did not kill them among their brethren. Now the pit into which Ishmael had cast all the dead bodies of the men whom he had slain because of Gedaliah was the same one Asa, the king, had made for fear of Basha, the king of Israel. Ishmael, the son of Netanyah, filled it with the slain. Then Ishmael carried away captive all the rest of the people who were in Mitzpah, the king's daughters, and all the people who remained in Mitzpah, whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim. And Ishmael, the son of Netanyah, carried them away captive and departed to go over to the Ammonites. But when Joanan, the son of Korea and all of the captains of the forces that were with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael, the son of Netanyah, had done. They took all the men and went to fight with Ishmael, the son of Netanyah, and they found him by the great pool that is in Gibeon. So it was when all the people who were with Ishmael saw Joanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces who were with him, that they were glad then all the people whom Ishmael had carried away captive from Mitzvah turned around and came back and went to Johanan, the son of Korea. But Ishmael, the son of Netanyah, escaped from Johanan with eight men and went to the Ammonites. Then Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces that were with him took from Mitzvah all the rest of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael, the son of Netanyah, after he had murdered Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, the mighty men of war, and the women, and the children, and the eunuchs, whom he had brought back from Gibeon. 
And they departed and dwelt in the habitation of Chimham, which is near Bethlehem, as they went on their way to Egypt because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them, because Ishmael, the son of Netanya, had murdered Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, whom the king of Babylon had made governor of the land. By way of reminder, Jerusalem has fallen. Jeremiah has been freed by the Babylonians. Gedaliah has been made the provisional governor of the now captive state of Judea, which is now under the political and economic and military control of Babylon. In chapter 40, the new governor encourages the remnant to submit to the king of Babylon, make his headquarters in Mitzpah. And when the scattered Jews hear that a provisional governor has been named, many of the Jews who had been in Egypt, who had been in what's now Jordan, who had been in what's now Syria, began to gather and come together and form a miniature, if you will, coalition government because they begin to understand something, that there's a plan and a purpose. Remember, Jeremiah has already revealed it, that the judgment that has come upon this place is going to be for a time and for a season and that God still has plans and purposes for the people of Judah. There's a prophecy. A Messiah is going to come on the scene. And so Ishmael has been hired by a foreign king to carry out an assassination. They want this infant government to die on the vine. And Gedaliah is told by Johanan that Ishmael is plotting to kill him in chapter 40, verse 16, but he doesn't believe it. And it is that unbelief that will put in motion not only his tragic death, but the death of many more Jews. And over and over again, we see that reoccurring theme. Warning. Something bad's about to happen. What happens if you run the red light? What happens if you refuse to stop at the stop sign? What happens if you refuse to read the contract in the fine print? What happens if you're not careful? Bad things can happen. In this chapter, Johanan's tragic warning will be fulfilled. Ishmael will kill Gedalia in verses 1 through 3. He'll then kill 70 pilgrims who have been making their way from the northern kingdom to the ruins of the destroyed temple to offer a sacrifice in verses 4 through 9. Ishmael will enslave many more prominent citizens in verse 10. Johanan and the other soldiers will mount a rescue and defeat Ishmael and release the captives in verses 11 through 18. In chapter 42 and in chapter 43, Johanan will ask Jeremiah to pray concerning God's will As to where the people should go. As a matter of fact, in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, after 10 days, Jeremiah announces God's twofold will in the matter. Those who remain in Judah will live. Chapter 42, verses 7 through 12. They need not fear the king of Babylon or retire to Egypt to die in chapter 42, verses 13 through 22. If they go to Egypt, 
all of the bad things that have happened in Judah will follow them in Egypt. And so there are those people who sometimes think, if I can move away, if I can run away, I can avoid the plan of God, I can avoid the will of God. True or false? It is false. Can you run away from the plan of God? Because wherever you go, you're going to take your heart with you, won't you? Jeremiah has been a faithful shepherd. Ishmael is going to be a deceitful traitor. Johanan, he starts off good, but he's going to prove to be a flawed leader. Look what it says in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Netanya, the son of Elishema, the royal family, and of the officers of the king, came with ten men to Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakam, at Mitzpah. And there they ate bread together at Mitzpah. You'll remember, Gedaliah has been named the governor by the king of Babylon. Ishmael is in the kingly line of succession. He is a son of David. He has royal blood flowing through his veins, and he believes that he should be the rightful ruler. The month is given, the seventh month. It's the month of Tishri. In the Jewish calendar, this is the month that corresponds with September and October. This is the time of the fall festival. We're given the month, but we're not told what year it was, which has caused an ending debate among Bible teachers. The, the city of Jerusalem fell in 586 B.C. And so people are wondering, well, is this three months after the fall of Jerusalem or is this five years after the fall of Jerusalem? Did the assassination take place Three months or one year or three years after the fall of Jerusalem were not told. But conservative Bible scholars suggest that three months isn't going to be enough time to pick up the pieces, appoint the governor, establish a, um, a new cabinet, um, sort the good Jews from the bad Jews of who's going to stay and who's going to go. And so suggested dates have been 583 and 582. If you go all the way to the end of Jeremiah chapter 52 in verse 30, it says, In the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guards, carried away captive of the Jews 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600, which would place it between 583 and 582. And which would confirm that there were probably a series of captivities that took place. The bottom line, the governor, Gedalia, somebody's going to assassinate you. They're trying to plot to kill your life, to take your life. Gedalia's answer, I don't believe you. It doesn't make sense to me. It's not going to happen. Not only does he disregard the intel concerning the plot to kill him. He invites the killer to dinner. Now, you have to understand something about Middle Eastern hospitality. It's very, very important. Some of you grew up in a different culture, in a different society. It might have been Italian. It might have been Spanish. It might have been Irish. Who knows what your background is? But we each have cult, you know, traditions. In my house, in my grandmother's house, we eat every Sunday after church, and here's the Italian tradition. When a grandmother says to you, do you want more food? 
If you say no, she gives you a little more. If you say yes, she gives you a lot more. So if you really mean no, expect under no circumstance will you leave with the plate empty. In Middle Eastern hospitality, there were certain things that you just always did. You don't invite guests to eat with you and then expect them to betray you. In the Middle East, the act of eating together is a pledge of friendship and loyalty. In other words, this is such an important issue in the Middle East that the moment that a person comes into your home and sits at your table, it is that person's responsibility to ensure your safety and security. So Ishmael will use the Middle Eastern custom as a ruse to carry out murder. As a matter of fact, Josephus, the historian, adds some details of this event in his book entitled Antiquities. And I'm going to read it to you. He writes, Ishmael came again to Gedalia. And when he had feasted Ishmael and those that were with him in a splendid manner at his table, he had given them presents. He became disordered in his drink while he endeavored to be very merry with them. And when Ishmael saw him in that case and that he was drowned in his cups to that degree of insensibility and fallen asleep, he rose up on a sudden with his ten friends and slew Gedalia. In other words, Josephus gives us a little bit of additional information not only had Gedalia given these men presents, but they all got drunk and they brought on the wine and they brought on the liquor and they drank and they drank and they drank until people were stinking drunk. This explains a little bit about how ten guys can overcome the king, his cabinet, And his bodyguard. And that's the way you have to think about it. Imagine you have a provisional government. And that provisional governor has his provisional cabinet. And that provisional governor and their cabinet have their secret service. And they're all together. Now, the secret service, when they're guarding the president, they wouldn't do anything stupid or foolish, would they? They just might. Because guess what? They're ignoring the warnings that have already been given. Then Ishmael, the son of Netanyah, and the ten men who were with him arose and struck Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, with the sword and killed him whom the king of Babylon had made the governor over the land. Now, you have to understand something. If the king of Babylon has made you the governor and you assassinate the governor, do you think the king of Babylon is going to take this personally? Yeah. It's like in our own culture and society. If someone kills the president of the United States, if they undo the electoral process, if we go through this process of electing a president according to the laws of our country, and then someone takes the president away from us, they're not just insulting our government, they're they're assaulting every single citizen. As they're undermining the judicial process. Judah has been defeated. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The people have been deported. The land is impoverished. Now the plot to execute the governor is accomplished. Now, again, you have to think about it. You have to think about this painful, dark, wicked 
time as people are struggling to hold on to something good and decent and hold on to something having to do with the future. And the fledgling little government is literally wiped out. It says Ishmael also struck down all the Jews. That's the cabinet who were with him. That is with Gedaliah at Mitzpah and the Chaldeans who were found there. These are the Babylonian bodyguards who have been left behind to ensure the safety and security of the provisional government who were found there, the men of war. And again, we, we begin to understand something, how this plot could be so completely successful that everyone is wiped out and nobody finds out about it for three days, we're going to find out in the next verse. They kill Gedaliah, they kill the cabinet, they, they destroy the government, and they even kill the Babylonian guards. But you have to understand something, this isn't going to satisfy the bloodlust that is awakened in the heart of Ishmael. Because he's out for blood and he understands something that he's crossed a line and he's gone in a direction. He has made himself not just an outlaw, but a terrorist. It makes sense. We could we could even make some sense that he is a person who thinks that he deserves the throne. But what doesn't make sense is his massacre of so many people in the not too distant future. But we're going to discover something. That often circumstances aren't what they seem. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the little parable. The parable of the little bird who was flying south for the winter and it was so cold that he froze and he fell to the ground in a large field. And while this frozen bird was lying there, a cow came by and dropped, you know what, on top of this little bird. And as the frozen bird lay there in this pile of cow dung, it began to heat up. He began to realize how warm it was. And the dung was actually thawing him out. And as he lay there, he became warm and happy. And soon the little bird began to sing for joy. And as fortune would have it, a passing cat heard the bird singing, came by to investigate And following the sound, the cat discovered the bird under the pile of cow dung and promptly dug it out and ate it. You know the moral of the story. Not everyone who drops a pile of dung on you is your enemy. Not everyone who gets you out of the pile is your friend. And when you are in deep dung, it's best to keep your mouth shut. The moral is going to have application. In so many ways, as our story continues, look what it says in verse four. And it happened on the second day after he had killed Gedaliah and as yet no one knew it. Now, think about that. Two days have gone by and now we're at the third day and no one knows that the governor, the cabinet, the secret service has been wiped out. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. If our president, the cabinet, and the Secret Service were all killed, how long would it take for us to find out about it? Or less. It, it, we have access to immediate 
information. The plot is so successful that literally it takes days for people to get wind of the massacre. And clearly this is what seems to be happening because in verse five, it says that certain men came from Shechem, from Shiloh, from Samaria, 80 men with their beards shaved and their clothes torn, having cut themselves with offerings and incense in their hand to bring them to the house of the Lord. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Israeli geography, Shechem, Shiloh, Samaria are all part of the northern kingdom. Shechem, for many, many years, was a religious sanctuary. It was a place where people would go in order to worship the Lord. So Shechem, Shiloh, and Samaria, are these pilgrims are coming from the north to the south in order to go to the place that used to be Jerusalem. Now, I want you to think about it. Thousands of people have been massacred and slaughtered. The temple has been completely destroyed. These people have shaved their beard and torn their clothes and cut themselves and brought offerings and incense to go to the place where the temple used to stand to mourn the loss and to beg God to forgive their sin. To offer them some sort of relief from their guilt and their wickedness. It says, now Ishmael, the son of Netanyahu, went out from Mitzpah to meet them. Note in verse 6, weeping as he went along. And it happened as he met them that he said to them, Come to Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim. In other words, these pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem with these offerings that they have are met by this terrorist and this assassin. Ishmael has violated the Middle Eastern custom of hospitality. And now he is going to take murder, violation of hospitality, and he's going to add hypocrisy and greed to the growing list of his character flaws. By the way, if you're going to murder everybody, does hypocrisy and greed seem so bad? Well, maybe not. But look what he's doing. He comes out to meet them weeping. Can you imagine the level of hypocrisy? He is going to disguise himself as a mourner. You know, there are a few things lower in the whole wide world than people who take advantage of other people in the midst of grief. Can you imagine operating a funeral home and you take advantage of a person in the in the deepest, darkest moment of their life? They're already troubled. Their heart is already broken. They are wanting to go in a particular direction. And and, and if there's some comfort in this passage, at, at least it's this. Here is a group of people who are with broken hearts and and gifts and offerings are at least trying to come to a place where they want to submit to God and worship God. But the terrorist is going to kill him. It says in verse 7, So it was when they came into the midst of the city that Ishmael, the son of Netanya, killed them and cast them into the midst of a pit and the men who were with him. In other words, the terrorists... Take these pilgrims quite by surprise and massacre them 
In verse 8 it says, But ten men were found among them who said to Ishmael, Do not kill us, for we have treasures of wheat and barley and oil and honey in the field. So he desisted and did not kill them among their brethren. So why does he spare them? Apparently greed. But why does he kill all of these other people? There's no good explanation. The greatest explanation that I've been able to come up with is he was crazy. He was nuts. Certainly it isn't because he's trying to hide his crime, because in order to do that, he's going to have to kill everyone in the city and he takes some of them captive. So why does he spare them? In part greed, but in part because he understands that he's crossed a line. And if he's going to engage in a military operation or in guerrilla warfare, he's going to have to have caches of supplies and food in order to feed himself and, and men in the weeks ahead. So Shiloh was located some 18 miles north of Jerusalem. Mitzpah is either four or eight miles if Ishmael was planning to carry out, again, the operations. He's going to need food and supplies, and this is going to provide caches of food so that he can go from place to place and have provision as he's going to continue his rampage. But you know what else this made me think about? How fragile life really is. How easy it is That you wake up one morning and you're headed to an expression of religious, you you, want to go somewhere, you want to do something, you want to honor God, and all of a sudden, you're dead. There's a car accident. Anything could happen. I was reading the story today of a a man who uh, was a pastor, and he went to visit a a man who seemed to be in relatively good health. And uh, the man asked him, hey, I hear a lot about being born again. What does that mean? And the pastor looked down at his Bible and began to talk to him about the Romans road, how everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that there's none righteous, no, not one, but that Jesus came into the world to forgive sin. And that if you want your sins forgiven and that you can experience forgiveness of sins and eternal life with Christ. And he looked up from his Bible and the man was dead, dead, D-E-A-D, dead. The last words out of this man's mouth. Pastor, tell me about this thing called being born again. You never know when the last opportunity, when you're with your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your friend, you you absolutely have no idea what the future holds. It says in verse 9, Now the pit into which Ishmael had cast all the dead bodies of the men whom he had slain because of Gedaliah was the same one Asa the king had made for fear of Basha the king of Israel. He's talking about a moment in history past when King Asa of Judea built this cistern. He dug a pit in order to fortify the city because he was afraid of the northern king of Israel coming and looting the city. So we know that this was at least 200 years ago. Have you ever been on a journey with your mom, dad, brothers, sisters, family, friends? You're driving across the country and all of a sudden you see a marker that says historical marker up ahead. And some crazy thing that had taken place in history in that particular place. 
This is what's happening in verse nine. The writer is saying, hey, look, there's this historic. This place was an important place in the history of the divided kingdom. And that's part of the point that is being made of the cistern. And um, by the way. The incident is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 22, and 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 6. And archaeologists digging at Tel in Nasbeh, which is the modern name of Mitzpah, where all of this stuff was taking place, have uncovered some 50 cisterns. Now, again, if you have the opportunity to go with me to Israel or go with anyone to Israel, for that matter, you're going to go to a number of different places and you're going to see cisterns hewn out of solid rock. Because remember, Judea is a desert with limited rainfall. And so they had to figure out lots of different ways in order to capture rain so that they would have well watered circumstances. And so in verse 10, it says, then Ishmael carried away captive all the rest of the people who were in Mitzvah, the king's daughters and all the people who remained in Mitzvah, whom Nebuzaradan. Remember, he is the captain of the guard. He is the chief of police. He is the head honcho of the Babylonian army. And remember what Nebuzaradan means, the butcher. Now, again. When the guy who's in charge of the law enforcement agency is named the butcher. That should be a sign right there that you don't want to cross this guy. That this is not a guy that you want to mess with. He committed to Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, and Ishmael, the son of Netanya, carried them away captive and departed to go over to the Ammonites. What's not said in the text and what you probably need to know is who's in Mitzvah. Remember, Jeremiah had already made an agreement with Nebuzaradan saying, Nebuzaradan said, hey, if you want to come to Babylon, come to Babylon with me. I'll take care of you. Hey, if you want to go to Gedalia, the new provisional governor, and, and, and lend him your superior understanding and Bible-based beliefs and, and give him good biblical advice, maybe you should go there. And so I'm going to suggest to you that both Jeremiah and Barak, or Barak, the, uh, the scribe, are among these people. It says... Ishmael, the son of Netanya, carried them away captive. Now, again, I want you to think about this. There has been a slaughter, a massacre. They have been under siege. The city has already been burned. Most of the people have have already been uh, taken away. I, I want you to imagine a series of circumstances where every bad thing that could happen has happened. And now we add on the laundry list of hypocrisy and lack of hospitality, greed and murder. Well, let's just put kidnapping. We'll add those to the charges. And the word translated the king's daughters is a Hebrew word, which means princess. And it doesn't necessarily mean that these are Zedekiahs who remember he is the king who was taken away whose sons were murdered right before his eyes. This doesn't necessarily mean that they're Zedekiah's actual daughters, though it may be. These might have been Zedekiah's actual daughters, or they may have been the actual wives of Zedekiah's sons 
They could have been a part of the royal family. But they carried him away. And look what it says. And departed to go over to the Ammonites. The Ammonites is part of that kingdom that you and I would call Syria and Jordan to the east. And so here's here's his plan. The plan is, okay. I've sort of wiped out the provisional government. I'm going to take these people captive. Maybe I can sell them, make some money um, and let the king of Ammon know that I'm still the right man for the job. And so in verse 11, it says, but when Joanan, the son of Kariah and all the captains of the forces that were with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael, the son of Netanya, had done, they took all the men and went to fight with Ishmael, the son of Netanya, and they found him by the great pool that is in Gibeon. Remember, Joanan is the guy who. Number one, told Gedalia about the murder plot. Number two, he seems to have been an excellent general. He gathers the captains of the forces that have survived the attack. And they're going to now confront Ishmael and try to recover the captives. Gibeon is a town and a territory that belonged to the tribe of Benjamin. It's mentioned in the book of Joshua. It's also mentioned in the book of 2 Samuel. According to Josephus, it was 40 to 50 stadia. A stadia in the Greek language was the amount of space around the track of a chariot race. So to put that in modern terms, it would be about 400 meters. So 40 or 50 stadia would be four to six miles from Jerusalem. And there was a a village called, in, in the modern times, El Jib, which is about five and a half miles Northwest, and it's believed to be the site where this takes place. And again, archaeologists have done several excavations. They found reservoirs, pools. And in this particular area, if you go, there's a hill. And on that hill is the remnants of the town that used to be there. And when it rains in the winter, there's an indentation where it fills with water and forms a lake. And so, again, as he's captured these people, he's going the quickest route that he can to get to the Jordanian border. But they're going to have to stop for water. And this is where they catch up with him. In verse 13, it says, so it was when all the people who were with Ishmael saw Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces who were with him, they were glad. Now, apparently they have about at least 10 guys, maybe more guys. Maybe it wasn't just the 10 people who were involved in the massacre. They might have had other guys stashed outside. Um, We're not sure, but we know that there's not enough people. There's enough people to herd them, but not necessarily enough to protect them, especially when Johanan shows up on the scene. It says in verse 14, that all the people whom Ishmael had carried away captive from Mitzpah turned around and came back and went to Johanan, the son of Kariah. So apparently these guys are trying to herd these people forward. The cavalry has come to the rescue. They turn tail. They run back to these other forces. In verse 15, so I guess here's the way I would put it. They have enough force to hold them hostage, but not enough to hold them when help comes by. It reminds me of you and me. In what way? Does Satan sometimes come and hold us hostage? 
Do we ever find ourselves wickedly taken captive by the deceitful enemy and we find ourselves in circumstances where we don't really belong and then all of a sudden we see Jesus coming right across the horizon and we realize that the devil is deceitful and strong but when Jesus shows up he can't really hold us. And so... It says, but Ishmael, the son of Netanya, escaped from Johanan with eight men. So apparently two dudes at least lost their lives in the skirmish. And then they went over to the Ammonites. Ishmael manages to escape. He returns to the territory of King Balas. Remember, King Balas is now the king of Ammon. And Johanan shows great courage in liberating the captives. But there's a crack in his character. And it's going to emerge in the next few chapters when Johanan reveals his lack of faith in going to Egypt. Now, we expect bad behavior from evil men. It makes perfect sense to us that Ishmael, a man who assassinates the provisional governor, kills everyone in the cabinet, also the Secret Service, and then engages in every wicked behavior imaginable, kidnapping, greed, you name it. He's involved with it. It makes perfect sense that wicked people are going to act wickedly. What we don't expect is for good men and women to go bad. People who act so honorably, so nobly, even with courage. Johanan will ignore the warnings of Jeremiah to stay in the land and not go to Egypt. And this is one of the tragedies. Because it's easy for a good man to go down the path of rebellion and disobedience, to go astray. And it can begin as simply as hearing the word of God and deciding that it really isn't important to believe it or obey it. And that's exactly what we're going to see in the next chapter, because Jeremiah is going to speak and he's going to say, "Okay, here are your options. But this seems to be what God has in mind. And it becomes really an important point that that we're going to look at and examine in more uh, detail when we go into the next chapter. It says in verse 16, then Johanan, the son of Korea and all the captains of the forces that were with him took from Mitzpah all the rest of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael, the son of Netanya, after he had murdered Gedalia, the son of Ahiakim, the mighty men of war and the women and the children and the eunuchs whom he had brought back from Gibeon. They recover the people. They put together the entourage. It says in verse 17, and they departed and dwelt in the habitation of Chimham, which is near Bethlehem, as they went on their way to Egypt. Now, we have to understand that Chimham is the name of an important person in the past, in Israel's history. Chimham was one of David's mighty men, and apparently he became a hotel keeper or an innkeeper just outside of Bethlehem. And as you can imagine, later on in life, Bethlehem is going to be really famous for hotels. Remember, this is the place where Mary shows up with Joseph pregnant and there's no room at the inn. 
But one of the things is that this is David's hometown. And also, it would appear that Johanan has a difficult challenge in front of him. He knows that Nebuchadnezzar might not wait for all of the facts. Nebuchadnezzar is going to get word. The provisional governor, governor killed. The provisional cabinet wiped out. Secret service destroyed. Jews in rebellion and on the loose. For those of you who are familiar with the book of Daniel. And you remember how. Nebuchadnezzar, when he's antagonized, how does he typically respond? Does he shoot first and ask questions later? (laughs) Yeah, he meets rebellion fairly harshly. It says in verse 18, because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them. In other words, even Johanan and the rest of the army leaders and all of the remnant of these people, remember they have been left in the land to provide a seed of hope, to provide the, 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 the genesis, the kernel that, uh, of hope that is going to result in a new nation and a returned nation where God's plans and purposes can come to pass. Johanan fears Reprisals from the king of Babylon. Because, again, you can't kill the governor appointed by the king and expect to get away with it. And so Johanan is going to decide to make a difficult decision. He's going to decide that it's safer to withdraw with this whole group to Egypt. And this is going to be the staging place from which they begin the journey into Egypt. Now, with this in mind, they make a temporary halt at the inn of Chimham near Bethlehem. Ishmael was cunning and ruthless, and he would stop at nothing to get his way. Johanan was courageous, bold, and noble. We don't find it hard to believe that there are desperate and wicked people who are capable of the most wicked and senseless violence in order to get their way. We live in a world where is it possible that a person could make a choice that could forever change you or your family? It is true. And sometimes we find that hard to believe and even more difficult to swallow. How is it even possible That God could allow someone so wicked and so bad to undermine what clearly seems to be God's plan and God's purpose. Johanan has enough courage to face Ishmael and want to kill him. But soon his courage will collapse and fear will overwhelm him as he faces the prospect of staying in Judah or going to Egypt. Have you ever been at a crossroads in your life and you had to make a decision of whether or not you were going to go left or whether or not you were going to go right, whether you were going to stay where you are or whether or not you were going to go to a place where at least it looks like it held out the hope of survival. And so Joanon is going to ask the prophet Jeremiah, what should we do? And Jeremiah is going to pray. 
And Jeremiah is going to pray. And he's going to pray one day. And then he's going to pray five days. And then he's going to pray ten days. And he's going to come back with an answer. And the answer is going to be, if you stay here, if you trust God, where you are, God's going to provide for you. But if you leave, the calamities, the wickedness, the hardship, the trial, the opposition, it's going to follow you wherever you go. What does that mean for you and what does that mean for me? Does it mean that if I'm praying a prayer and I say, should I stay here, Lord, or should I go somewhere else that I have to stay here? That's not what it means at all. What it means is that almost invariably there are two things that happen every time you pray about God's will and God's plan and God's purpose. And that is the revelation of God's will and God's plan and God's purpose. And once God has revealed the plan and the purpose to you, the chances are the best place for you to be is smack dab in the middle of God's will. But sometimes fear will drive you away and you'll run away from God's plan and you'll run away from God's purpose. So what was God's will? What was God's plan? God's plan was to stay and plant and build. Jeremiah and Baruch are with a band of captives They're with a guy who's acted honorably and nobly. But will this new leader settle things with his fists or with his faith? This is one of the real problems about being a Sicilian person. Sicilian people have a tendency to settle things In a way that is definitive. You overwhelm the enemy. But God isn't interested in us pushing and shoving our way into the center of his will. Would the self-appointed leader. Point them in the right direction. Or in the wrong direction. And it becomes sort of a question that we get to ask each and every one of ourselves, don't we? In some way, we are each and every one of us making decisions about our life, about the life of our family, about the life of our children, about those who are involved in our ministry. You are going to go to the left or you're going to go to the right. You're going to go in the right direction or you're going to go in the wrong direction. You're going to go in the direction that is the proven plan and the proven will or the unproven plan and the unproven will. So many people ask me this question. What is God's will? And I remind them. If you just simply ask and answer the question according to what the Bible says, in big terms, you're going to come up with some pretty impressive answers. Is it God's will for people to be lost or saved? Saved. That's a pretty easy one. So if a person is an unbeliever walking in darkness and wickedness, it makes perfect sense that it's God's will for them to turn from their sin and embrace Jesus as their Savior. That was an easy one. So, we can put it a little differently. God's will for you to go to heaven or hell? Heaven, that's a good guess, and that's the right one. 
To stay in darkness or walk in light? To be carnal or spiritual? To have the fruit of the Spirit or the work of the flesh? Yeah, all of these are really, really easy. But I'm here to tell you that if you actually obey the easy ones, be saved. Walk in light. Walk in uh, the fruit of the Spirit instead of the flesh. Guess what? The more difficult ones will become easier and easier and easier for you to answer. Between chapter 40 and chapter 41, a warning ignored. Between chapter 41 and 42, Jeremiah will once again warn the remnant. Each and every one of us have an opportunity to stop at red lights. Some of you will run the light. Stop at the stop sign. Some of you will go through the stop sign. Some of you will be given repeated warnings. Turn away from that sinful relationship. Walk away from that wickedness. Don't indulge. Embrace God's best plan for you. And you'll obey. Or you'll disobey. But you know what God is? He's faithful in giving us warning after warning after warning so that you can go in the right direction instead of the wrong direction. Next week, chapter 42. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We even thank you for the warnings. And Lord, we know that warnings fall into two categories. Those that we believe and those we disbelieve. Those we heed and those we ignore. And Lord, we thank you that in your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your generosity, you've given us chance after chance and opportunity after opportunity to walk in the direction of submission To walk in humility and holiness. Sacrifice and selflessness. Like we learned about on Sunday. And so Lord we pray. That when we are on that road marked with suffering. Even when there's pain in the offering. That Lord our desire would be to listen to you. Lord, we know that you spare some and others come to what seems like an abrupt, startling conclusion. But Lord, we have to believe that if we're here, you have unfinished business with us. And so, Lord, we pray that you will complete that business for the unbeliever that will hear the gospel, that Jesus loves us and that will respond in faith. For the Christian who's walking in darkness and rebellion. That we would confess our sin and turn immediately and abruptly and go in a direction of submission and obedience. And for the Christian who wants to exercise their gifts and callings. Lord, we pray that you would stir them up and that you would use them. For their good and for your glory. In Jesus name. Amen. And let's.